0: go recruit some scientists
1: Oh yeah let me some uh, recruitment montages Let's go Woo Psychology meets film. I am your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and today we are going to jump into one of the more recent films. I know we spend a lot of time on the show talking about films of yesteryear, but today I want to get a film that came out this year, the same year as recording. Now, you may be listening to this in the future, which is cool. But we're talking 2023, recording in 2023. That film is Oppenheimer. Yep, that one. The one that came out this summer. I thought I I, I needed to get on this one on the show pretty quick. Later in this calendar year, we're going to get the other half of Barbenheimer. So stay tuned for that episode. Barbie coming up in a few months, at least for those who listen as these go live. (laughs) For those in the future, you probably saw that there is a Barbie episode. Anyways, back to Oppenheimer. Okay, so this is Christopher Nolan's Next movie, his most recent movie, after you know, Tenet came out, and then before that, we have a lot of other movies like Interstellar, so on and so forth. Inception. This one, I think, takes him back to his roots, a character-driven drama uh surrounding real-life events and real-life people. Okay, so Christopher Nolan, um, directed this, and he also wrote it. And the interesting thing about his writing of this is he wrote it from the f- the first person's perspective of J. Robert Oppenheimer. He wrote it as if I walk into the lab. I meet General Leslie Groves. These kinds of... Writing where most of the time is written from a third-person perspective. You've got character A saying something, character B, and so on and so forth. Christopher Nolan wrote this as J. Robert Oppenheimer, or at least a fictionalized version of Oppenheimer. It's based on the book by Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin, which I think is really cool. It's a biography of Oppenheimer, and... You do see some of the historical influences from this biography, which I think is interesting. Now, of course, it is a biopic and it is a fictional biopic. It's not a documentary about Robert Oppenheimer. It has fictionalized elements, of course, so not everything is going to be as a- as exact as they appeared in the movie. And of course, there's really nothing to give away in this. I don't think we're going to be spoiling anything, my my guest host and I. So, you know, uh, if you're a fan of just like being surprised, then I suggest go watch the movie. I think it's still in theaters, but if not, wait until you watch the movie uh, and then listen to the rest of this episode. But if you're not a if you don't care, you know. Again, there's nothing really to spoil. A lot of this stuff happened in in history and you can read about these historical events, right? You can read the book written by Burden Sherwin. So, you know, just just keep that in mind as you're listening to us. And if you haven't seen it, but you just want to listen, That's fine, too. Maybe you'll go find some historical pieces of information that you thought were really interesting and, um, you know, go in and do a little bit of learning about uh, the Manhattan Project and the events both surrounding the Manhattan Project and then the events afterward. The the bomb drops on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, notwithstanding, of course, those are talked about frequently. Cast of characters here. Oh my God, this movie has everyone. Killian Murphy plays J. Robert Oppenheimer and he does an accent. Um, Of course, Killian Murphy is Irish, but he does this accent that I think he's trying to base on the many interviews post-Manhattan Project and Trinity Test of Robert Oppenheimer being on the news, him saying the famous quote about uh, now I become death, destroyer of worlds. I think he was trying to model it. I don't know how close he gets. I I was captivated by it, but I know that there is some chatter about him having a really weird accent. So l- leave it. I'll leave it there. Uh, he does. Uh, he he did ca- captivate me though. Uh, Emily Blunt plays his wife, Kitty Oppenheimer. Robert Downey Jr. plays. Uh, Admiral Louis Struss now his name is spelled Strauss but this gentleman went by Struss as to reduce the Jewishness of his name and he has said uh, so in in his later life that uh, he preferred to go by Struss because of this uh, aspect right uh, Alden Ehrenreich plays a Senate aide to Lewis Strauss, who is getting uh, going through a confirmation hearing. And uh, part of the film, and Scott Grimes plays his counsel. Jason Clark is in the movie. Tony Goldwyn is in the movie. James Darcy is in the movie. But some of the good scientists that we need to know about. Okay, so Kenneth Brana plays Niels Bohr, the of the Bohr model. Uh, Let's see, who else do we have? David Krumholtz plays Isidore Rabi. Uh, Matthias uh, Schweighöfer plays Werner Heisenberg. We only see a tiny little bit of Matthias, but you know what? Who cares? We got some Heisenberg, and that's all that matters. Uh, Josh Hartnett plays Ernest Lawrence, a uh, physical, experimental uh, physicist, And we're probably not going to talk about him that much in this, but let's just say this was a great um, later career turn for Josh Hartnett. I really enjoyed it. Um, And then a bunch of other people. Florence Pugh has a short, small role as Gene Tatlock, one of uh, Oppenheimer's affairs. And then um, this one, what I thought was random, Uh, Josh Peck plays Kenneth Bainbridge. And then Jack Quaid plays Richard Feynman. I'm like, what? Benny Safty plays uh, Edward Teller. You, you see a ton of people in this movie. And then finally, to get the great uh, Matt Damon in here, plays a hardened Leslie Groves, uh, who makes jokes about killing people, you know? Or at least uh, 86ing them and getting them you know, uh, removed from this earth. We'll say great cast of characters, great cast of characters, but this is truly a Christopher Nolan film. He is the auteur here and some of the special effects they were able to achieve, um, without the use of computer, uh, generated graphics, the explosion and the mushroom cloud from the Trinity test, I think were some great visual effects, um, had me on the edge of my seat. And even though this movie is three hours, uh, I don't think I, uh, I mean, I looked at my watch, but I don't think I was ever like, oh my God, there's another hour left in this movie. No, because it it goes back and forth uh, and it goes back and forth between two time periods. And while it might be confusing in the beginning, going back and forth with these two time periods, I think it becomes clearer as you go through it I know that Nolan's uh, nonlinear storytelling does bother some people, but man, once it gets going, it is so good. It is so good. Now, I do enjoy my Christopher Nolan films because they are true spectacles, true cinema, in my opinion. Uh, I know he's not for everyone, but you know what? We're going to talk about some psych concepts that are in this film And I think some really useful psych concepts. So stick around for our guest and discussion of Oppenheimer. My guest host today is Dr. Sai Islam. Sai is joining the show again after his first appearance last year discussing the MCU and leadership. You should definitely check out that episode. But if you're not familiar, Sai is the co-founder and vice president of consulting with Talent Metrics, and Associate Professor of Industrial Organizational Psychology at Farmingdale State College. Excuse me. Tsai has over 15 years of experience providing data analytic training and organizational development support to organizations in a variety of workplace settings. His consulting work was recognized by the Society for Industrial Organizational Psychology, SIOP, for those in the know, when he won the Scientist Practitioner Presidential Recognition Award for his focus on science-driven practices in training and talent development. Asai, welcome back to the show. Good to be back, Alex. I'm happy to have you back on. Um, I had fun last time talking about the MCU, and I know we talked, we're trying to talk about 20-plus movies, and now we're only going to talk about one. So b- b- before we get into that, how has the last year been since we last had you on the show?
0: It's been good, you know, very busy. You know, uh, Gordon and I, we did a lot of promotion for the uh, MCU book. Mm-hmm. We're currently working on another book, this time about uh, Avatar, The Last Airbender and leadership. Oh. Um, not the movie, <laughs> the TV show, just yes. to clarify. Fair <laughs>
1: enough. <laughs> That's a good clarification.
0: Yeah, one is good, one is uh, not so good. Exactly. You know? yeah, yeah, And very excited to talk about, uh, you know, one of my favorite filmmakers uh, today, which is uh, Christopher Knowlton
1: yeah and uh it's been uh, speaking of of uh a a current film a pretty good 2023 coming you know coming out of the the downed uh valley we'll say of the pandemic right
0: yeah absolutely this year has been really uh great for movies lots of good movies you know starting with like I think the first really great movie I saw was John Wick 4, mm-hmm. uh, which I, you know, I enjoyed um, most people that know me know that I'm a huge sucker for like action movies mm-hmm. okay. and will like, just put one on if, if I'm grading. So if my <laughs> students feel beat up afterwards, that's because I was watching like some Tony Jaa eco waste movie uh, while I was grading. So fair enough. But uh, the, right. you know, like the one big movie that came out that's like, the most popular is the one I haven't seen yet, which is Barbie.
1: Oh my goodness. And to pivot to our current discussion, I mean, Barbenheimer was like the song of the summer, 2023, right? Barbenheimer, this Barbenheimer, that it was like free marketing for both movies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it was strange because when both of the movies were announced, they were on the same, they were opening the same day. And Mm -hmm. I was like, but, this is some weird counter-programming. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think people would actually spend like, what was it? Five or six hours in the theater hopping from one movie to the other. I mean, uh, you know, that's a lot. And they, you know, this, they really brought it back and then immediately tried to kill uh, the, the industry with the strike. So,
1: <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of funny that some people went and stayed in a movie theater for, uh, you know, like you said, five hours, because I don't think I could do that. I, I I, don't I don't think I've ever wanted anything less than to spend unless it's like one of those cushy AMCs that has like the really awesome recliner chairs. But like I none of the none of the uh, theaters around me would ever get my butt in a seat for longer than, you know, this three hour movie.
0: it's a lot. Um, I mean, the, the one time that I stayed in the theater for about four hours was when I was a kid, my dad and I, we went to see last crusade, Indiana Jones and last crusade. And we came, we were late. So we, we missed the first hour of the movie. And so my dad was like, let's just stay (laughs) through the next showing. And we did. And, but it was like three, three, four hours at the theater. So, you know,
1: I have never heard of that we're an hour late for this movie. So let's just stay for the beginning part. (laughs) I love it. All right, let's, let's pivot to, uh, this three hour film, uh, our discussion of a, this is uh, actually the funny thing is, is that later this year, um, I'm going to have another, uh, guest on to talk about Barbie. So that's, I mean that the, this is the year of, of, Weird programming on Cinema Psych uh, instead of old movies that everyone's using for that everyone's been using for decades in psych classes. Nope. Let's bring in the new crop. So this one Oppenheimer name of the man, the real man directed by Christopher Nolan, his brainchild, if you will. Uh, So I wanted to ask what your initial thoughts were on the film just in general and uh, like you know what you liked, what you didn't like. And then we'll jump into some of the site concepts that are fairly apparent, I think, in the um, in the creation of the team that goes to Trinity site and you know the Manhattan project in general. And then some of uh, so the site concepts. And of course, as a as an iO psychologist, you're going to come at it from an organizational point of view. And for some reason, I like that on the show because I get to learn something uh, that I didn't get as a as an undergrad or a graduate student. So, initial thoughts in the film.
0: So I I really enjoyed this movie. I have pretty much liked every Christopher Nolan movie except for Insomnia. That's the only one that I've been really like. I don't I I didn't didn't love that. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> for me, Oppenheimer is like all of the things that. Nolan likes about movies, the things that he's made, all of that stuff, uh cranked up to eleven. And yeah. there's literally shots in this movie from like The Prestige. Mm-hmm. Uh there's shots from Dark Knight Rises. Oh wow. I didn't know. You know, that. like, you know, they're they're pushing in on the on the on the actual nuclear bomb. And I'm yeah. like, oh, this is exactly what he did in Dark Knight Rises. There's stuff from Batman begins. There's a, you know, specific, specifically with Killian Murphy, where he, when he was Scarecrow, he had this effect where the background was blurring. Yeah. And that's in there. There's a couple oh, of things right, from right, like right. Interstellar. You know, there is, uh, there's some stuff from Tenet. I mean, nobody goes backwards in this movie, but <laughs> thankfully. Uh, sp- Yeah, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen Tenet. But, you know, and then all the things that he's interested in, right? The stuff that he cares about, all of it is in here, right? Like dual timelines, Mm -hmm. you know, um, dueling men, right? Like uh, competing against each other, black and white versus color, you know, different meanings, uh, perspective and subjectivity. All of that stuff is in this movie. And he's just firing at all each was firing on all cylinders in this movie and it's you know some critics have said that it's like the culmination of maybe the last 10 to 15 years of his filmmaking sure and that that makes a lot of sense uh and so before uh before coming on the show today last week i actually found time uh while my toddler was in daycare to watch wow. the movie again wow uh, if, yeah because there was a lot of stuff i didn't remember and you know if anybody wants to know why I, I think both of us didn't do Barbenheimer is because we have young children, right? <laughs> like, right. you know, every trip to the theater is like an extra hundred dollars because you've got to get that babysitter. Um, Indeed. You know, and it probably would have been like 150 for the five hours of Barbenheimer. You know? <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I really, I enjoyed the movie. It, you know, I, one of the things I found really interesting, I don't know if you if you felt this way watching this. So we're both academics mm-hmm. and, and watching this movie was like, uh physics avengers Mm -hmm. oh there's there's Mm -hmm. enrico fermi there's niels bohr Mm -hmm. there's whoever and then you know the the classic version of what i thought the academy would look like it is in this movie right like i don't know if you felt that way like watching it i really was like oh wow this is what it was like back in the day
1: I, i i felt very similar um also the reverence and deference paid to like uh, to to Albert Einstein, right? as he was nearing the end of his career and his life, right. Um, so you kind of felt that they were like, oh yeah, no, that's that's Einstein, and and they're about to um break what he wrote about, right, <laughs> from a theoreticals perspective. But yeah, it was it was very it was it was definitely physics Avengers and how much uh time nolan gave to just like the mondacity of of academic life for sure one of the funniest things about this is that the two biggest physics
0: names were both guys who are like i don't really like math <laughs> right like the einstein is like ah, i don't need to worry about these equations and oppenheimer's like i'm not very good in the lab and your equations are better than mine right. and that really struck a chord with me because uh a lot of times you know, when I don't know if you've ever taught psych stats before,
1: yeah, I do every year. Yeah, you do every year, so yeah, you,
0: so you have that feeling of like, I'm not really a statistician, but you're gonna learn enough to like do something <laughs> with these numbers. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I guess, I guess physics, physicists have the same thing where they're the guys that are, you know, uh, they they kind of understand the theory, but they're not great at math, and then you've got the math heavy people in there, and we see that a lot in IO as well, that like there's just folks that are like analytics people they're doing a lot of coding in R and they're, Mm -hmm. they're producing all these, you know, all these numbers. And um, I think that's really, I actually think it's very valuable for people to know that like the person we think of as like the smartest person in history, Einstein didn't love doing math, you know?
1: Yeah. And like the, the gentleman who plays him did, did the uh, absent minded professor shtick quite well too with, the hat and it's falling off and um, all sorts of these goofy, goofy in, in not like ha 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 slapstick goofy kind of way, but like uh, old man, uh, I, I am not long for this world kind of goofy. And you kind of feel that, especially in the way that the stories collide and you only find out uh, at the end what Oppenheimer and Einstein say to each other at the pond. Yeah, I felt like it was it was very cool to see, you know, your your theoretical physicists uh, not uh, necessarily understanding the experimental physicists and vice versa. And um, yeah, so uh, just like a, a comment that um, Josh Hartnett, uh, Josh Hartnett as Ernest Lawrence uh, makes about theoretical physicists and how they don't really know how the world works. <laughs> it was great. So, yeah, it was, it was fun to see, like you said, the classic academia right at the forefront. And it, we get that uh, we get a little bit of that in psych, Two when they show the picture of they like the the um, Titchener uh, experimentalists, conference where titchener had all of these people come and including freud and everything we get a little bit of that but nothing nothing big heavy names was there anything about the movie that you didn't like um the
0: the biggest you know the the thing that i probably found lacking in the movie but this is kind of true of of films in general is okay. um there's not enough time to really dig into like the the ethical stuff Mm-hmm. there's not a lot of time to get a real glimpse of all of the characters so for example you see jean tatlock you get a little taste of who she is mm-hmm. you kind of know that she has some mental health issues you know that she's she seems a little little you know off-putting as a as a romantic partner but there's not a lot of depth to that and but that's i mean that's something that happens with with uh um, with movies in general right movies right. play around with so much of sleight of hand I I could have sat through like a five hour cut of the movie. I'm sure there is one. I'm sure there is one, but apparently uh, IMAX cannot go past three hours. So huh. seventy millimeter IMAX, they cannot like the actual film thing. Yeah, they can't make a movie for more than three hours, and he hits exactly three hours. <laughs> um, I love it.
1: Yeah, Probably so cutting. Bits here and frames there yep. for hours upon hours. Film yep. filmmaking, <laughs> just a, a uh, an editor with a cigarette in his mouth, just like oh, I gotta uh, gotta find a frame here. Ooh, gotta find a frame here. All right, let's jump into the uh, psychology concepts that we spotted in this film, and I'll I'll start. We'll start off with uh, some IO concepts, and then uh, I think. The way that, that um, we structured the notes here, I think we can um, come up with a couple of segments. One about the teams uh, that, uh, the, or I should say the team in general, the, the, the folks that worked on the Manhattan Project. And of course, for filmmaking purposes, this isn't everyone that worked on the Manhattan Project, but it is a good portion of the folks that were at Trinity site in uh, Los Alamos, New Mexico. And so we'll do that and then we'll take a quick break and then we'll jump into um, a couple of other IO topics that Psy spotted. You are
0: the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves and the world is not prepared.
1: Okay, so for this first segment, let's talk about this team that uh, Leslie Groves comes, uh, the, the, the general uh, played by Matt Damon, comes over and um, has an interesting conversation with Robert Oppenheimer. And in this scene, Robert Oppenheimer tells him that you're going to make me director of this this project uh, if you are a smart person. And of course, Leslie Groves, as a army general, thinks that you know he is a smart person. So of course. He ends up making Oppenheimer, uh, the lead on this. So, Sai, talk to us about how Oppenheimer goes about putting this uh, Trinity team together.
0: So it's really interesting. Oppenheimer knows. So, it, it one of the other things. which since we talked a little bit about academia, uh, in this, this is a time period where physics is small enough where everybody knows everybody. Which why right? Like, yeah, it's, it, it's wild to think about it now because from a for us as psychologists. Like, I can't keep up with, like, all the research that's coming out. In IO, yeah. you know, we're a small community. We kind of know everybody. You know, you know the the big players. You know who the who the people are that are doing good research and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But it's kind of wild to imagine that all of these folks know one another. And Oppenheimer knows enough, not just about... American physics and European physics, but also about where the Germans are and and how far along they happen to be in their own project. Right. And to the point where he can tell uh, Leslie Groves, like, hey, here's what we need to do. Here's what we have to do. And he creates this plan for distributed teams So when we think about teams, a lot of times you think about a single work team. This movie is about multi-team systems. So if you're an IO uh, psychologist, IO faculty member, you're looking for an example of multi-team systems. What Oppenheimer describes is exactly a multi-team system. And it's not just a team, uh, a system between scientists. It's also between the military. right? And so you get to see the variety of ways in which teams can be structured, how they can kind of communicate with one another. And Oppenheimer he does this pretty often where he is able to have this sort of vision of what something should look like. And I don't know how how long he might've been thinking about, you know, doing everything in Los Alamos, (laughs) uh, his, his like favorite place growing up, but he basically figured out that there would be different teams focusing on different topics within the, within the build of the, the bomb Mm -hmm. and that they would all meet in Los Alamos when it came time to do the Trinity test. And what's interesting is when we usually think about work or people working together, we imagine that a a leader or manager has to like poke and prod and push people to do work. That's not really the case with academics, especially high level academics like the folks he's dealing with. Right. He's dealing with the smartest, the brightest, the best people who have enormous amounts of leeway in the way they do their work. Sure. Right. Like if you're a tenured academic or if you're well known, what are you going to say? There's a moment in the movie that like really floored me because I hadn't really thought about it. But when they bring Niels Bohr in and, you know, Leslie Groves is like, well, why do we need Niels Bohr? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Oppenheimer's response is, "Who, who do you know that corrected Einstein? And it's like, nobody, he's the one guy. And then how are you going to manage somebody like that? Somebody who, you know, is literally a genius. And one of the interesting things you see is that Oppenheimer lets people kind of like do what they want. Right. And this is like way before Google or Apple or any of the tech companies started doing stuff like this. But he has this conflict with Edmund Teller, who eventually goes on to create the Mm H-bomb and Teller is basically like, I don't care about this. Your bomb's not big enough. I can build a bigger one. And Oppenheimer's like, okay, let's spend an hour a week talking about that. And I'm just going to let you do whatever you want. Like when you usually think of work teams, that would never fly. Mm -hmm. But in academia, with the smartest people, with the, the biggest minds in the world, you can't corral those folks through you know discipline and through orders which is what groves uses as a as a military general you right. know he's like yeah. build him a town like okay i guess i guess the army's gonna build him a town <laughs> right, so these right. are all these are all like so cool right to think about that all these differences are there and all the cool stuff that that people are able to do uh in this type of setting uh and and it's all you know just part of the dna of this movie
1: yeah and i uh, i you see quite a bit of it here and there throughout the movie you i i, I want to specifically go back to 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 teller in this movie because there's a there's a bit of of added conflict there for you know storytelling purposes um where teller as you said it's like this you can definitely do a lot more with hydrogen than you can with plutonium or uranium so Um, let's go. Let's let's work on that. And and Oppenheimer says we don't have time. We don't have the time to do that. We're working with this radioactive material first. Um, and uh, rather than lose Teller on the team, and of course, uh, we're talking from slightly ahistorical events here. Right. Let's 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 also add that disclaimer here again um that not everything that is in this movie happened in real life or happened the way that it it is shown in the film um and so he has you know he, tellers like i'm ready to quit uh, i I want to go go home i don't want to live here in los alamos anymore and it's like all right all right all right stay put i want to help us build the a bomb and then you know we'll talk about how you can uh build the H bomb in in a you know in a quicker way, right? Because we get we end up getting to the H bomb not very far, uh not very long after we drop the atomic bombs on Japan, which is for Teller, I mean it's just like whoa, bro, calm down. Do you want to make a bigger bomb? Damn,
0: dude. Yeah. He he's he's about he's about that bigger bomb. And what's really interesting is that's the beginning of that ethical consideration yeah. for, for Oppenheimer, right? And for, for psychologists, right, we're always concerned about ethics in mm-hmm. our research. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I don't think anybody, else, any, any psychologist is working on a bomb ever at any given time. Um, I hope not. But we do, you know, I mean, maybe my research bombs <laughs> because of reviewer two,
1: right? <laughs> right. But, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> but we're not building those types of things. We, we have the potential to, to harm people but we take that consideration very very seriously mm-hmm. and it's really interesting to see that ethical consideration in a different science where mm-hmm. they can really they can literally blow people up and you know the kind of trade off that he's making is really interesting right he's saying well the nazis cannot have this mm-hmm. we need to beat them mm-hmm. and then it escalates beyond that even though his justification to himself is oppenheimer's is like no there after we see what this can do there's no way we can continue Mm -hmm. And little as you know, no, we we can keep going. Yeah, because after the
1: after the Nazis, we can't have we can't let the Nazis have this. We can't let the Soviets have this either. That's right. Right. As we pivot to the black and white and Lewis Struss debacle. Right. So there's this constant like one upsmanship that's going on in in this and, and i i think it's fascinating that um we get to see a little bit of that and it's ratcheting with some of these individuals of course oppenheimer and these individuals as we go through uh there was one thing that i i noted um in the movie and i, I wasn't expecting this but um oppenheimer wears a wears a um a military outfit when he's first uh made director and and he's uh com- assembling this team but he hates it he doesn't like it what is it about this uniform so to speak when he goes back to his fedora well
0: symbols you know in, in leadership uh, research and organizational behavior we talk about symbols a lot Sim- there's symbolic um you know meaning to things that leaders do especially project heads and things like that and okay. he gets um Robbie gets some advice from his, his, what amounts to, I think his best friend, Robbie, who tells him like, you're, you know, you can't be a soldier, even though Groves wants them all to be wearing uniforms to conform to that. um, Robbie, it has a lot of wisdom. He says like, these, these folks are not soldiers. They're never going to be soldiers. You cannot be, you can't be wearing this uniform and pretending you're a soldier you just need to be yourself Mm -hmm. and that's where you get this sort of like batman-ish suit up scene where he wears his his suit he wears his fedora he got his pipe and he's got the classic oppenheimer look Mm -hmm. and that matters because that's a demarcation for the scientists to know that yes we're working with the military but we are not of the military. Mm-hmm. And you see that come up in in different situations. I think you're going to talk a little bit about this, but in the ethical discussion that happens later on, where there's a group of scientists that are having this big talk, you know, mil- the military folks are not doing that. They're not sitting around and saying, well, do I really like these orders that I'm getting from the general? That's right. not, that's not their role, but the scientists are. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the demarcation between military and, and science.
1: I, and, I, and I like how they made that explicit in the movie. I like how um, David Krumholtz, uh, as you say, he plays Isidore Robbie and he explains this demarcation for the audience because you just there's a lot of scenes in this movie um, that have no dialogue and you kind of just have to watch people's faces and most importantly, killing Murphy's face um as he struggles with the not only the weight of this task prior to the trinity test but then the ethics of the task after they successfully test the bomb at los alamos and then drop drop the two bombs um on japan and 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 the the aftermath of what that means for the world and then his continued um part of the was it the um uh the uh, energy commission the atomic energy commission At- atomic yeah, energy ac yep. mm-hmm. uh, and and he's just he's grappling with it the entire time um so let's go back to oppenheimer and his uh leadership role because you mentioned this a couple of times but in the movie we see him interacting so we we talked about the the teller bit but um, we see him interacting with a lot of different people. Of course, he interacts with groves most specifically, and then he interacts with um, all of the other and the I think what um, the marketers thought was the thing that would get people into the theater. Like look at all the stars that we we got for this movie, which is the part of the movie where they're assembling the team, right? Um, and so once the team is at Los Alamos, what kind of leader would we consider from from an I.O. perspective, would consider Oppenheimer?
0: So Oppenheimer is re- really interesting because he actually does, um, you know, he does a couple of things uh, that we think of when we think about leadership theory. So in leadership theory, we can kind of break down activities of a leader into two different um, segments. Usually there there's task orientation which is keeping people on task, making sure they're doing the work. And then the second part is the relationship stuff. Okay. Kind of like, can we keep people, you know, uh, from hitting each other from, you know, uh, you know, from keep the team together. Okay. And you can see there's a lot of wisdom when he builds the Los Alamos site uh, for the Trinity test. He says, bring their family, you know, everybody's got to be able to bring their families. Mm-hmm. They've got to have a normal, normal. life here. Right. So he understands that part of it. The part of, you know, leadership that he doesn't really do as well with is really the political part, mm-hmm. which is you see him constantly butting heads with Groves. And sometimes he wins, sometimes he doesn't. Right. Right. And and that comes back to haunt him later on. There's, you know, when he has this fall, falling out with Admiral Strauss, there's a way for him to manage that relationship. And what he chooses to do is he kind of blows it up. You know, he he embarrasses uh, Admiral Strauss in um, in public,
1: mm-hmm. which
0: is not really a great way if you're going to continue to work with this person, especially if they control your security clearance. <laughs> it's probably not the best thing to do to yeah. like anger them to that point. Yeah. Uh, and so you can see that he he has his own limitations. Um, there's a comment in the in the film where Strauss basically says that, you know, he thinks that Oppenheimer felt like fame could protect him. Mm hmm. That was the thing that was going to get him get him over. And I, I think he might have overestimated his ability to be this voice of science, to get people to listen to him. Uh, because, you know, after he completes the task, he has all of this. He's completed the work, but he loses his influence. As soon as the work is done, as soon as the secret's out, mm-hmm. that influence is gone. And so one of the things that he kind of banks on is his ability to have referent power. Right, there are different types of power that leaders can have. Okay. He thinks that he's gonna have the respect of the American people and the politicians. Right. What he finds out later on is sorry, buddy, thing it, it's over. Yeah. You know, we got what we needed, we're gonna do whatever we want. And all the decision making, uh, or the influence that he tries to put over on policy later on, uh doesn't seem to really be working very well Mm-mm. uh after after the Trinity test, after the the bomb is complete.
1: Right, because at that point he becomes just one opinion in a larger set of opinions where the men on the committee the AEC as we uh, as we identified is you know a, a a group and they make they make recommendations to the administration right and so it's not like they're back at los alamos Making or, or Oppenheimer is making those hardline decisions or doing this, doing that, or even you know, comparing it to all of the military folks uh, on there. The Russians have a bomb, we're supposed to be years ahead of them, but data indicates it may
0: have been a plutonium implosion device like the one you built at Los Alamos.
1: There were rumors of espionage. Unsubstantiated. Los. There's, There's no Los
0: proof. There was a spy at Los Alamos.
1: How many people were in these uh, open discussions? Too many compartmentalization was supposed to be the protocol. We were in a race against the Nazis. And now the race is against the Soviets. Not unless we start. Uh, pivoting there, I think that's a good segue actually into um, my world here, which is bias and and specifically group bias here. Uh, groupthink uh, was something that I was thinking of, and I don't know if this is uh, a blessing or a curse. Now that I've spent so much time thinking about biases for my wandering course, but I just see them everywhere now. It must be. A, it's probably going to be a curse. Um, so in the movie, the things that I spotted regarding um, the group dynamics were quite interesting. For one thing, as you said, we've got team. We've got uh task teams basically, right? You uh you three work on the casing for the bomb, right? Which is really cool. They show how it gets put together in the movie. I, I've never seen that before. It's really awesome. Um, and then you 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 group over there, you're going to be working on this thing, and then they come together, which is great because it allows for lots of voices to then come together for the bigger so to speak voice and prevent things f- f- like group th- from happening so actually I I I, I just want to say that before I go too far I want to say that the movie does a good job of showing how to prevent group bias here which is great which is contrasted in what I saw with how Struss uh ran his meetings he was very glib um uh, and I don't know, I want to say uh, dismissive of a lot of different voices. He was very upset in the one scene where they're all, he was being pulled from a banquet, I think, and um, and was just very upset at learning that the Russians had uh, access or had made progress toward an H-bomb, and so... And then the one voice there that was kind of dissenting was Oppenheimer, but everyone else kind of went with what arrows, as opposed to the olive branch, uh, Struss wanted, right? He wanted to make sure that the Russians didn't get access to this bomb,
0: absolutely. And, and you know, one of the interesting things there is, uh, from a leadership perspective, he has power, right? He has, he has like, he can punish he has reward power he can give you things Mm -hmm. right he can give you information he controls your security clearance he can control your access to resources and he knows all of those things because he has all of this power at the atomic energy commission but they're also driven by this fear right like that that fear is uh driving so much of the choices that are happening like we, we just got rid of the Nazis. Now we have to worry about the Soviets. If they get this, we're we're screwed. So we yeah, need to communism wins up.
1: all of that stuff. yeah. and and as the most famous example of of group uh, is very similar to this situation, but happened uh, many years before, right? So we have this 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 banquet scene where Struss is saying, my way or the highway. Um and in the 1960s, we have the failed Bay of Pigs invasion from the Kennedy administration, and you're right. Even with the president of the United States and all of the people, all of his advisors surrounding him, making sure that they make the best decision, it's, it's very crud- crucial that this goes right, and of course it goes wrong, and as Kennedy himself said, how could we be so stupid with this decision? And it has to do with what you're saying, right? Kennedy has the ability to uh, reward and to punish everyone in this cabinet and all of these advisors. And uh, very early on in the administration, none of these advisors knew exactly how he would handle that kind of infor- uh, that situation or or uh, dissenting information, we'll say. Because we see what stress does to Oppie Right. From from this point forward, there is tension between the two. And when Oppie comes out publicly, like you said, and says that Struss got X, Y, and Z wrong, uh, Struss has egg on his face and is like, all right, well, you're off the commission, buddy. And I'm gonna revoke your clearance, but not in the way that you you think we're gonna put you through this like really tumultuous fact-finding strenuous administrative hearing
0: yeah yeah absolutely and then that's actually the so one of the funniest things about this discussion especially about groupthink especially with kennedy is that kennedy goes against strauss in that hearing he's the reason you know he when they talk about him it's almost like you know, when you mentioned the Joker at the end of Batman Begins, oh, yeah, J- J- President, you know, uh, Senator Kennedy totally screwed you on this. <laughs> right. But he himself didn't accept he, he didn't accept anybody, anybody's uh, alternative opinion. Right. it came to Bay of Pigs. Exactly. So should have listened to previous past life Kennedy.
1: Yeah, exactly. Should have listened to Senator Kennedy, president. Kennedy, yeah. So I mean I, I really enjoyed uh looking at the the way the two gentlemen created their we'll just call them cabinets for the sake of argument, right? Created their, their groups around them, right? Both of them had at, at different stages of this movie, of course, right? The the uh Los Alamos part and then the aftermath, right? So both of them had these these, uh, situations where they needed people around them to help advise them. And you see one do it well and one do it not so well. And I thought that was great. So we're going to take a quick break and uh, we'll come back with Dr. Sai Islam to talk about a couple more things from an IO perspective that he spotted in this uh, uh, great movie. We'll be right back. Are you a big fan of the Cinema Psych podcast, a connoisseur of the compelling stories and intriguing insights that we have on this show? Well, show your love in style with our premium podcast merchandise. Yeah, that's right. I've updated the podcast store from ultra comfy hoodies, perfect for cozy podcast binges to sleek coffee mugs that add a dash of personality to your morning routine. Our merchandise store has it all. I've added so many new products and it's designed to withstand countless listening marathons. There are a lot of episodes. I think you'll love them. But wait, there is more. Every week there is a new promotion turning up the volume on value so keep an eye out for our exciting special promotions every other week 15 percent off in between sometimes there's a special 25 percent off day and then sometimes there's free shipping it's the perfect way to score your cinema psych podcast merch for less I'm excited to have expanded the merchandise offerings, but I'm really excited to say that new designs are coming up. And you can put these designs on all of the merchandise. So keep an eye out for new arrivals in the design section. So don't just listen, wear it, flaunt it, live it. Visit our merchandise store at Cinema Psych Pod dot dot psych.com slash store to shop your love for the cinema psych podcast today remember every purchase goes directly to supporting this show and of course thanks for listening to this show i love doing it now let's get back into it And we are back with Dr. Sai Islam talking Oppenheimer and the industrial organizational psychology that you can find in making an atomic bomb. So a couple of, uh, of, of topics that you had spotted, Sai, um, relate to diversity in the creation of the scientists' team. Uh, headed uh, he- headed the atomic bomb creation. And then the consulting. Of course, as a consultant, I am not shocked you saw consulting in this movie, um, probably in the same ways that it is a both a blessing and a curse that I spot biases everywhere. And it's probably a blessing and a curse for you as well. So I want to first talk the diversity angle here uh, because... We're at a time in or the, the movie, it set. We're at a time uh, when tensions are running hot uh, between ethnic groups in the world. Right. Not only just what's happening in Europe, but of course, what's happening in Japan uh, and the Pacific. And then as well, I mean, because this is World War II, as well as what's happening in the Middle East and in Africa. Well, we're going to not talk about all of those places. Of course, this movie is about (laughs) this movie is about J. Robert Oppenheimer. So talk to us about the diversity that you spotted uh, diversity angle here. We'll call it uh, that you spotted in the movie.
0: Well, there's some really interesting things here. One of the one of the most interesting from from my perspective of, you know, is that one of the big dividing lines between the Nazis and their very race conscious approach to everything And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Americans is that, you know, the Americans are more willing not not to say that they're willing to have everybody work together equally at this time. Mm -hmm. That's definitely not the case, but they're more willing than the Nazis. The Nazis are uh, Oppenheimer makes this comment that, you know, um, he's banking on the fact that Hitler is such a huge racist that even if he needs this weapon, he doesn't trust Jewish scientists to give it to him and he's going to hamper their attempts to get materials to get stuff that they need and that that is what really is the edge for the americans to get ahead to build the bomb and to you know ultimately to to win world war ii and it's such a stark contrast one really interesting thing i noticed in the movie as well is that there's a lot of diversity on the teams there are women yeah uh there are you know there are African Americans in the rooms where they're building uh you know building the bomb or running experiments sure they don't really have they don't have speaking parts, but yeah I like that that was there because it made it clear that they have a place during this time period that they're contributing to this effort so that we don't forget that we had Tuskegee airmen and right other folks in in those rooms. And so that's one of the things that that, uh, you know, we want to make sure that we're, we're really clear about is that, you know, we don't want to find the talent as IO psychologists. One of our big concerns is we want to find the talent that we that we want. And we don't want uh, demographic characteristics to get in the way of us finding that talent. Right. And. There's an example where Olivia Thurlby, she's playing uh, Lily Hornig in the movie. Mm-hmm. She goes to get a placement in a in a lab, and they're like, "Hey, how fast can you type?" Yeah, and she's there to be a chemist, and he says, "No, come come here. You know, uh, I needed work in the lab to do this so that we can accomplish our goal." Right, and so little things like that, little microaggressions like that, can get in the way of teams performing effectively. But you know, Oppenheimer doesn't care, and his passion for this project is also rooted very much in his personal experience as a as a Jew, as somebody who you know has experienced uh, racism. Mm-hmm. You know, he he knows what what could happen uh, if the Nazis win, and he makes this sort of devil's bargain because of that. He yeah. says, "Well, I can, I think I can trust America. I think I can trust the West to be safe with this," and one of the things that he's he you know kind of finds out is that maybe this is too powerful maybe Mm -hmm. this stuff is too powerful for him you know for just one country to have it maybe everybody needs access to it so that we can you know share in whatever this is in in this power yeah Uh, so this is one of the most interesting parts of the film that it's so explicit about the need for groups of people disparate groups of people to get together and work to solve big problems
1: yeah, and I find that um like you said I was I was not aware of the uh female presence at Los Alamos and, I, and and so I'm glad that um that Christopher Nolan added that in uh and as you said there were there were uh some black folks at uh that at that site even though they didn't have any speaking roles. You know, we're still talking about a an america that was quite segregated uh with many southern states that had jim crow laws in place right to to keep the separate but equal doctrine alive and and it it, it is uh it is a bummer that there weren't more diverse voices it's also a bit of a bummer um at how white the uh crowd is uh after the news breaks that the bombs were dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima and you're, you're looking at this uh auditorium with just what was 1940s America right which at least 1940s America that was on the billboard on the billboards right
0: yeah. uh in
1: the movies and stuff and so it does it does strike one as as a a misstep there not by the filmmakers but of America in general but i do like the way that you contrasted how the the gambit if you will of oppenheimer and everyone around him were like okay well you know if hitler's that big of a racist and he's got great minds like heisenberg who did not decide to flee when they could have right um and instead of because i i mean this is obviously speculation here but imagine if um heisenberg was able to put together a a german team on this project right
0: There's definitely an alternate history where he's he gets the resources he needs. He's Mm -hmm. already got he's already ahead of the game. And even Oppenheimer describes him as having the most intuitive sense of quantum mechanics out of everybody. Uh, Niels Bohr says it. Feynman Mm -hmm. says it. Everybody recognizes him as being like one of the top people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you can't just have LeBron on the team and expect to (laughs) expect to get there. Right. So you need everybody. Maybe LeBron says
1: that. (laughs) right Le- LeBron and his agent yeah yes exactly <laughs> LeBron and his agent right so um there are um there is of course the the side story we'll say of Oppenheimer's uh affair with
0: Gene Tatlock or yeah he, he gets around just yeah. so you know I mean That's it's true. Gene Tatlock
1: he and did. then also I, Gene Tatlock. Richard
0: Tolman's wife uh he also is sleeping with Right. So, you know, somebody definitely has tenure because he has time to hook up with all these women. Uh, oh my gosh.
1: God. Yeah. So uh Gene <laughs> Gene Tatlock, right? So we have this side story of uh his affair with Gene Tatlock, and and um in the movie, uh you and I were discussing before the we started recording that in the movie, uh when he first meets her and first has uh sex with her, that um this is when he uh says the line from
0: the, the Bhagavad Gita yep. there we go
1: thank you uh I am become death destroyer of worlds which always gives me chills which always gives me chills I mean I heard that line probably when I was uh under 10 from as uh, from Ober- Oppenheimer speaking it I was like what the hell does that mean But then I obviously got older and realized that it's just it gives me chills every single time um so he says this phrase to her, and it's kind of it's kind of odd to see. Other than some of the women, sci- other other than some of the women as scientists at um at Trinity site, um the other women in this movie are, as you say, getting around with Oppie here, right? And so the interesting thing is that. The way that he says it to Gene really indicates some foreshadowing there, in my opinion. Well Oh, absolutely. And it's also very funny that
0: it's in the middle of the sex scene because sex is sometimes referred to as the little death. Mm. Right? And and he's like, Yeah, I've become death. <clears throat> I guess Gene Tatlock is gonna take him out with the little death. Yeah. Um I didn't. I didn't come up with that, by the way. Somebody on Twitter wrote it, and I was like, "Oh, that's that's correct."
1: (laughs) I love it. I love Uh, it. So,
0: you know, um, I don't know. I don't know who who it was. I can't give. I can't cite it properly in APA style. That's okay. uh,
1: That's okay. We don't. We don't cite. uh, We don't cite an APA (laughs) style on this show. Uh, It's only Chicago style. So if you got that, we're good. Yeah, I I just thought it was interesting that uh, the other women in this movie are sort of uh, act as foils uh, for Oppenheimer uh in in some ways and i gotta give it to emily blunt though she nailed this role as his wife kitty oppenheimer she, she did such a phenomenal job especially as a is an extremely loyal but uh haunted wife oh yeah
0: Yeah, and there's definitely like a work-life balance thing happening there because Mm -hmm. she was a biologist and she doesn't have anything. Once she marries Oppenheimer, she's just working. She's just at home. Yeah. And she's dissatisfied. And uh, at one point they say that they're terrible parents and they're awful, selfish people. I I can't dispute that really, given what happens in the movie. Mm -hmm. They're not really that good as parents, but they are good as a couple. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh she has, I mean, she does a great job of showing this desire to fight. Where Oppenheimer really just feels like he maybe he just needs to get beat up, you know, almost <laughs> for what he's done. Yeah, you know, that's the the working theory that they have that he doesn't really care about the security clearance anymore. He really feels he has to pay the price for allowing the A bomb to exist.
1: Yeah, kind of uh, his uh, self-flagellation by humiliation so to speak, right? Um, and I, I I, like the way that you put that. Uh, I, I also have to say that it, it's very rare in media that parents of children uh, reflect accurately about their parenting.
0: Very rare. I am a wonderful father. I will have everyone know. That is an accurate representation <laughs> of how good a dad I
1: am, you know? I don't spend <laughs> but too much this is real life phone. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not. Nobody does. We're not teaching bad habits. Okay. So, the last um IO th- concept that you spotted in this movie was regarding consulting, and I think it's a fitting end uh to our chat to uh talk consulting as a consultant as a non-consultant to uh uh one consultant here uh educate me on um how this movie did did a did a job so
0: one of the most interesting things about this is in io psychology we talk about something called the scientist practitioner gap where scientists you know we publish research and you know for lucky people in the world of work they read it and maybe they use it if they have an io degree um But the reality is that most people that are in business or that are working in in organizations, they're not thinking about science. They're not saying, well, I can manage this more scientifically. I can assess what the qualities are within my organization and Mm, I can measure mm -hmm. these things. So as a consultant, sometimes you'll build a program, whether it's a training program, whether it's a hiring tool, whether it's a structured interview, whatever that happens to be. And you give it to the organization And even even if you work internally inside of that organization, you may give it to somebody in the organization and then they'll say, "Okay, we we got it from here. Don't worry about it. We'll we'll handle it. (laughs) And that was exactly the ending of uh, Oppenheimer. He, He builds this thing. Yeah. And then. He thinks they're going to be like, give me more advice on how to use it. Tell me what else I should do to to use this. And they're kind of like, well, don't let the door hit you on your way out. <laughs> and sometimes sometimes in consulting, that's what happens. Right. Like uh, one of the areas of consulting that uh, my company does is we build custom uh, pre-hire assessments. Okay. You know, things like situational judgment tests, things okay. like structured interviews, uh, okay. knowledge tests, things like that. And we'll let organizations use those tools the way that they see fit. We build them the one thing and we say, here's where we think it should go in your selection process. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if they want us to maintain it to validate it further, we do, but how they use it, how they decide to use it is wholly up to them. And we're only there in an, in an advisory capacity. Okay, And that sense that, well, you know, we're, we know what we're doing, we don't really need you to bother to bother with you anymore uh, why don't you guys go home and you can do your science. You can do your little science, whatever you want. And maybe if we need it again, we'll call you. But right now, that's that's not something that we that we really need. Okay. And it's also very interesting because certain parts of the government very heavily use IO psychologists. So the Secret Service, CIA, U.S. Army, Navy, every division of the government has an IO psychologist working there that's doing this now, that's trying to build hiring systems, performance management systems, training systems. Oh, interesting. To create peak performance. Gotcha. And even in those organizations, uh, you might get that disconnect a little bit. But as somebody who works externally with organizations, you definitely feel that where they're like, okay, we're thank you for whatever you built. And, you know, we'll, we'll use it however we want. And what we try to do, uh, my business partner and I, is we try to get them to buy into the ideas of science and using these tools appropriately uh, so that they're making good decisions and they're not harming people within within organizations Mm -hmm. and they're actually getting the most out of the tool uh the tools that we happen to create
1: okay um so so as you said in the movie uh oppenheimer's like here's my gift and the government's like great we'll take it from here and we'll see you later um but they do give him a role on the aec right uh, along with like you know Richard Feynman and and a few other folks that we see uh, Ernest Lawrence and everyone, uh, but they want to develop the H bomb as Teller wanted to do, but they also want to use the the science for good, right? They they want to they want to create um, um nuclear energy, right? Nuclear power plants right uh with uranium and and uh power of the world right which absolutely he, he, there uh, there unto foreseen um had not it was the most powerful energy source other than the sun right at that point we were using coal oil not very many not very much wind uh there was hydroelectric uh hydroelectric power but you know this is a this is a a an energy source that we we've never seen before and and this could change everyone's lives and even at that point oppenheimer um is wary for of this right and again of the same of a similar of a similar uh ilk where well Thanks for your input, but we'll take it from here.
0: Yeah, I, I really think one of the one of the things Nolan talked a lot about in the interviews prior to the movie was this idea of uh climate change. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of climate scientists probably feel this way, where people are like, okay, you're warning us, great, but we'll we'll figure it out. We're policy people, we'll figure it out. Thank you for your input on yeah. we need to hit these hit these markers. Yeah. But they're warning everybody. They're giving them this warning, and you know, when Oppenheimer talks about people potentially destroying themselves later on. He's not just talking about, you know, the atomic bomb. He's also talking about all of these other sources of energy and all of these things, all of this knowledge that humans have that could potentially harm us. And it's really interesting to think about now because APA and APS, these these organizations with psychologists, we're, we're getting asked to create behavior change in people mm-hmm. to, you know, maybe not use fossil fuels, maybe to use other sources of fuel. And we're being asked to do that. And I don't, I don't know our organization's listening to us or our government's listening to us Are people listening to us. Yeah. That's a real, really big question.
1: Right. Right. And our, are, are uh, do, or do we have enough time to instill the behavior change?
0: Oh yeah. Oh
1: man. Uh, favorite, favorite scene from the movie.
0: You know, I, I think the, the Trinity test, everything leading up to that, to that Trinity test is, is so on point. It's so good. Everything just works really, really well, you know, and then the, you know, everything afterwards just feels like, like crumbling defeat mm-hmm. after that, that moment of triumph. And and that, that sequence is so good. It's an all timer sequence, you know, in a, in, you know, in an Nolan movie and Nolan's got a lot of those. So
1: that's true. I do agree. I would say my favorite uh scene is the bleacher uh, gymnasium scene that I mentioned a few minutes ago when they were all celebrating the triumph of the end of the war and everything like that and just Oppenheimer going like what have I done? Uh what have we done, but also what have I done? And and um the it not necessarily the beginnings of guilt. I think they they show uh the buildup of guilt, but at that point, I think it culminates and it crescendos and the stomping i mean it's a it's a very visceral visceral scene and i was on the edge of my seat watching that
0: that was like the there are two scenes in the movie that are very close to like nolan doing straight up horror <clears> and that <throat> that's one of them that that scene is because people's faces are twisted like they're clapping but it's not like happy clapping it's like everybody's face is wrong there's the one girl whose face is peeling off
1: yep yep um, she, he's yeah because he was like showing the body horror of, of yeah like people in japan probably who are having similar effects at the moment of the bond dropping. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah
0: the other horror movie scene is uh, when Gene Tatlock dies, there's the gloved hands. Mm-hmm. Th- that's like a Dario Argento uh, Italian
1: horror moment, the black gloves and yeah. killing somebody. So and, and the reason why Nolan put that in there is reading about this. The reason why he put that in there and it was like three frames, right, is uh-huh. blinking you miss it as far as like, uh, uh the uh speculation around her death which was ruled uh-huh. a suicide in real life the re- and so the reason why you put that in there was because uh there is there was I don't know if there is still but there was some question as to whether or not she did kill herself and yeah. um and and as far as like, that being in the movie uh-huh. was to uh was to suggest that Gene was a security risk Oh. for for being uh, a member of the American Communist Party and unabashed yeah. member of the Amer- uh, Communist Party. Uh, and um, the fact that, that uh, Oppenheimer was leaving Los Alamos to go see her more than once, and she's like, she, she's a distraction. Um, oh.
0: D- doesn't Groves make a joke early in the movie where he's like, oh, we'll just kill them? right like he makes this joke he's like yeah I will. I'll, I'll just kill him don't worry mm-hmm. and then I think that's also why that line is there yeah uh, to kind of set that up right
1: right and it's, it's, it, again blink and you miss it or like ha ha that's Matt Damon being funny uh, or being like dark funny but yeah, yeah it, it's definitely to set that up but if you weren't if you're not paying attention during that scene you're gonna miss those gloved hands and it's it's wild yeah I agree <laughs> Well, I want to thank Dr. Sai Islam for joining me again today to discuss Oppenheimer. Sai, what are some things that are going on in your world that you'd like to plug for the listeners here at the end of our show? Well, if uh,
0: any of your listeners are interested in learning more about IO and pop culture, uh, Dr. Gordon Schmidt uh, has posted a, um, a little blog about Barbie and oh, motivation. Okay. We've got some stuff about secret invasion and leader member exchange, really exciting stuff. Uh, So you can definitely check out the talent metrics blog. You can find me on LinkedIn um, and blue sky, apparently uh, (laughs) and a a few other places. So, you know, feel free to reach out if you have any questions uh, about that, but you know, we're working, we're plugging away on the, on the next book in our leadership series. And then, you know, hopefully once that's done, we'll get something else out there.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks again for stopping by, Cy. I really appreciate it. And I I had a lot of fun talking Oppenheimer with you.
0: Thank you so much. Really awesome movie. Awesome time uh, being on the podcast. And, uh, you know, can't wait to hear some feedback about this
1: discussion. And that's going to do it for this episode. Until the next one, thanks for listening.